Thank you, Mandy. Thank you for that introduction, and welcome, everybody. It's nice to see such a large crowd here today. Um, our session is a pretty lightweight one. It's called Rewriting History, <laughs> and it's about challenging the official narratives of history in all sorts of places. And we have uh, four different speakers, as you'll see, talking about completely different topics. Uh, and that will be part of the, the fun of this evening. Um, the plan is that they'll each talk for uh, exactly eight minutes, <laughs> or something like that. Um, and they'll do that in sequence. Uh, and then we will have perhaps a few minutes of conversation amongst the panel and then open up to question and answer. So there'll be plenty of time for uh, you to get your uh, oar in and to get your ideas out there as well. Um, so let me introduce now our panellists. So first of all, Ruth Dudley Edwards. Ruth uh, is a very well-known historian, a broadcaster, a journalist, and also crime novelist. Um, uh, she's written a, a very wide range of award-winning books on Irish history. Uh, the most recent one is called The Seven, The Lives and Legacies of the Founding Fathers of the Irish Republic, which was shortlisted for the Orwell Prize. Um, and Ruth is going to talk, as you might expect, on uh, Irish history and the need to question official versions of that narrative. Second speaker is Dr. Max Sternberg, who's a university lecturer at the University of Cambridge here. He's deputy director of the Center for Urban Conflicts Research and a fellow of Pembroke. Um, Max's publications include, and this is perhaps the, uh, the most relevant, so I'll stick to that, um, a co-authored co volume called The Struggle for Jerusalem's Holy Places. And he's going to talk about arch archi how architectural heritage is used and abused in contested urban areas um, to legitimise larger ethnic and national claims for um, territory and belonging. So that's Max at the end. Um, then we have uh, Yeshim Yaprak uh, Yildish, yes, a reasonable approximation anyway. Um, uh, Yeshim is doing a PhD here at Cambridge in Sociology. Uh, she is a Kurd from Turkey, which means she carries a considerable historical burden. Um, and she is in fact writing about the confessional performances of state officials on atrocities against Tur Kurds in Turkey during the 1990s. So this is a very hot and sensitive topic, and that's what she's going to be essentially talking about to us. And then finally, last but certainly not least, is uh, Keinde uh, uh, Andrews. Um, Keinde is a social professor, associate professor of sociology um, at Birmingham City University, and he has been a pioneer of the development of a black studies degree at Birmingham City University. I asked him how many such degrees there are, and he, he said actually only one at Birmingham City. So this is quite a, an interesting uh, and important development. He's um, uh, the author, his most recent book, a co-edited book, was called Blackness in Britain. Uh, and he's working on a net, another book which will come out next year called Black Radicalism, 
uh, and his, he's going to talk about, if you like, the, perhaps the narrowest of all the topics, which is contesting the whole Eurocentric interpretation of history. Uh, that we are burdened with. And that's the, that's the panel, and uh, that's enough from me. So, Ruth, over to you, first of all. Thank you, David. Can you all hear? Well, now, just one slight correction. Um, I haven't stuck to Irish history. In fact, I've been fleeing Irish history and Irish nationalism for a large part of my life, but I keep being dragged back into it. And the reason I was fleeing, really, and I... Uh, emigrated from Ireland the day I got married at the age of 21. Uh, for young people in the audience, that was a very quaint thing. People like me used to do it those days, to get married at 21. It's what you did, um, usually foolishly. I didn't like Irish nationalism one bit. And I owe, I think, uh, quite a lot of my dislike of it and skepticism to my grandmother, my grandmother Edwards, who lived upstairs in our house and had an enormous picture over her fireplace of a mythical scene from the 1916 revolution of various well-known leaders of Irish nationalism um, in heroic poses and British fire th coming through windows. And um, she worshipped the people who led that revolution in 1916. I should say for perspective, because perspective is something I've always been rather keen on, that there were about a quarter of a million people, men from Ireland, fighting in the First World War, and there were about 1,200 involved in the Irish Revolution. But um, the people who'd fought in the First World War were airbrushed out of Irish history for many, many, many decades as not being true patriots, because the Irish people later legitimized a revolution that they had not approved of at the time, and they did so really from reasons of pure sentiment because of the execution of uh, 16 people, 17. The, actually, the British authorities went pretty lightly on the leaders of that revolution. Um, Granny also had a picture of Hitler at the bottom of her bed. Granny liked fascists. <coughs> She'd been very fond of Mussolini and very, very upset when he came to a sticky end. She mourned Hitler, but she had transferred her affections latterly in the 50s to Stalin. <laughs> and uh, my first, I must have been put up to this by one of my parents who were not fond of Granny. Um, I, did, I, I did say at the age of seven, but Granny, what about the Jews? And she said, British propaganda. So that was my first exposure to insane Irish nationalism, actually, <laughs> Irish republicanism the ability to rewrite everything in the light of your convictions. Well, we didn't just, um, as a state, uh, worship the leaders of 1916, whose pictures were in every school, uh, whose pictures were in most public buildings. But we also were, we kowtowed to the Roman Catholic Church. So I didn't like either nationalism or Catholicism, and I got the hell out. And then somehow or other, I. I was doing a PhD on Anglo-Papal relations in the 15th century, and I realized I didn't enjoy medieval history, and I was no good at Latin or paleography, and I didn't want to be an academic. So I abandoned ship and went into well, the civil service for a time. But somebody asked me to do a textbook on Irish history, and I needed the money, 
<laughs> and then somebody asked me to do a biography of a fellow called Patrick Pierce. And that was because I had always been interested in him. He was the front man of the revolution. He had written an enormous amount of stuff which was quoted endlessly. It was tremendous propaganda for his intention of dying for Ireland. And, um, and I had always been curious about him. I mean, that was true when I was a university undergraduate and afterwards. And I'd written a, a couple of book reviews, I think, related to him. So somebody asked me to write his biography, and I couldn't resist it. Because nobody seemed to know anything about him, except that he was the greatest man in Irish history. And he was a saint. And he was a very devout Catholic. And he was a person we should all emulate. And uh, I wrote it, and I concluded that although there were many things I liked about Pierce, he was a nutcase, really, um, who had a lot of um, private horrors, or as now as Mr. Harvey Weinstein would say, demons. He had demons he had to deal with, and he dealt with them by assisting in starting a revolution, which killed a few hundred civilians, and started an acceptance of political violence in Ireland as okay in the mainstream. Um, and then I got away from him, and I wrote a fat book on Victor Gollans, uh, the Jewish publisher, publisher and public um, controversialist. So I got much involved in the politics of Judaism. Then I wrote the history of The Economist. And mostly I got away from Ireland, and then the, I started doing journalism, and I didn't like what the IRA was doing, and I didn't like the rewriting of Irish history that was going on. So I got pulled back into it. And uh, I can't really escape. It's a life sentence. I've accepted that. But the sequence, when I published the book on Pierce, which was an honest book, um, and there was quite a lot of evidence about it, I was really unprepared for the storm of abuse. I mean, I'm very hardened now to abuse. I can take any amount of it, really. It quite amuses me. But in those days, I, I didn't know what it meant when I was accused of being a, a traitor. I understood that. And, anti-nationalist, which is a terrible sin, anti-republican, which is a terrible sin. I wasn't really any of those things. I'd written a book about a chap that nobody knew much about, um, and I tried to understand him. But the thing that really baffled me was when somebody, I, I read a play about Pierce, which had been published as a, a book, and in the introduction, it denounced me for being a revisionist. And I didn't know what a revisionist was. Um, but it turned out that by that he meant anti-nationalist, anti-patriotic, anti-whatever it was. So that particular label was hung around my neck. Well, now I therefore tell all our Irish audiences that I'm very proud to be a revisionist because if you don't revise your opinions in the light of evidence, you're either a fool or a knave. That doesn't go down well, but um, that is the truth of the matter. All <laughs> historians should be permanently revising their opinions. And there are things in the book on Pierce that I wouldn't actually agree with now that I said. Perhaps I slightly got something out of perspective or whatever. Anyway, we proceed. And uh, over the decades, what happened was that because the violence of 1916 was legitimized retrospectively, everybody who wants to kill for Ireland now believes that they can do it with impunity because in the end, they'll be legitimized. And for the last 20 years, probably, Sinn Féin has been extremely busy revising the history of the Irish Troubles. 
um, they set out to fight for a united Ireland, the IRA. They didn't get it, but they now say they weren't fighting for a united Ireland, they were fighting for equal rights. They weren't fighting for equal rights, they didn't think of that particular idea until about the 1990s, about which time they, were about, they had been beaten to a standstill and they were having to make a compromise and make peace. But they rewrite and they are most perturbed by the fact that the Irish public, after many years of taking a very simple view on its history, has begun to accept that history isn't that simple. And for instance, they've begun to accept that all those people who had a terrible First World War had uh, the right to have their history recorded and were badly, badly treated by their own country. So I find audiences now in Ireland are subtle, nuanced in their understanding, and it really maddens Sinn Féin, absolutely maddens them. So they rewrite busily all the time the simple old narrative. We were the most unfortunate people ever. We were the most persecuted people in the world. The lack of perspective is startling, actually, when you think about it. Um, they tried to imply that Northern Ireland was an apartheid state, which is just rubbish. Um, but th they have enough true believers. It's, a sort of, it's become a kind of a cult, actually, Sinn Féin. They have enough true believers that they can carry on with an absolutely simple narrative. And before I end up, I mean, I've been saying harsh things about Irish nationalists. I must say we are very good at it. I don't know anybody on earth, actually, that I, any group of people that I've ever read about who are so brilliant as nationalist propagandists. We have the songs, we have the stories, we have the poetry. I mean, we had three poets among the seven men who led that revolution, for heaven's sake. Well, four, actually. There's another one who used to do a bit of doggerel. You know, and they nearly all wrote, and they wrote really well. And they didn't worry about the um, truth of it or otherwise. They were propagandists. I mean, in another time, they'd have been making an absolute fortune, working for various brands. Uh, but anyway, it was applied to nationalists. So whatever else I say about my countrymen, we are tops at propaganda. Tops. <laughs> right, I think that's my opening. Well, a very mild-mannered and diffident presentation um, <laughs> and keeping perfectly to time. So thank you very much indeed. Um, so now, Max, you're going to talk second. Thank you. Um, so this, this won't be a slide, I'm afraid. Um, so my background is in, in history and theory of architecture and, and the social politics of, of architecture and urbanism. And I've been working on uh, two different contexts. One, Israel, Palestine, and Jerusalem in particular. Um, so the situation of exacerbating conflict or deepening conflict, you might say, and I've also worked on uh, the borderlands of the European Union, specifically the German-Polish border. So what I'm interested in both of these contexts is the use of heritage, uh, how heritage is recovered, represented, reconstructed, or preserved, conserved, um, for the purposes of either exacerbating or mitigating conflict. Um, I think the first thing to say is that the nature of urban conflict has changed. And that's something that we sort of forget when we think of classic examples of using heritage or reconstruction following or during conflict. Uh, we need to recognize the difference, and that's, that's not easily understood. So I mean, we have more urban conflict than we've had before, you might say. Uh, the nature of this conflict tends to be more about ethno-national contestation than previously. Than previous wars might have been more between states. Now we find that 
wars are, um, at least as they relate to cities, more um, internal to those cities, and they're more they're more active players within those those conflicts, and that has several complicated consequences for for dealing with heritage uh, in contested cities. First of all, the sort of boundaries between victim and perpetrators is less clear. So, so we're used to these very strong purist narratives, uh, but in a, in a city subject to civil wars where there's divided populations still present in those cities, it's very hard to, to actually have a sort of hegemonic narrative uh, or a clear narrative about who might be victim and perpetrators. And of course, nobody wants to be a perpetrator. Everybody's always a victim. Um, and also, I think this business of, of conflict being traditionally sort of external to a city. So if you take the classic example of, say, Warsaw in the Second World War, you know, subject to brutal sort of um, phases of destruction, the initial invasion by the Germans, the brutal occupation, a rising of the ghetto, the, and that you know, being destroyed, then there's a, a rising in 44, simply of the Polish nationalists, and then this kind of punishing of, of the city by being completely razed to the ground by the Germans, and dynamited after, as it were, the, the rebellion was, was put down. And then subsequently, the, the sort of rubble of Warsaw being reused as building material for other wider projects. So I mean, the city couldn't have been subject to a more severe um, process of destruction. And then as it were, there's peace of some sort. There might be a Cold War context, but there's a sort of peace. And you can reconstruct the city, and you can give a sense of you know, recovering local identity through heritage. And, and it's seen as a kind of heroic tale, the reconstruction of Warsaw. But what do you do in a city like Sarajevo or Jerusalem or Beirut when the conflict was fought within and about the city and the ingredients of that conflict are still there and present? And that's typically when, when heritage <coughs> continues to be to exacerbate conflict rather than, than being a kind of hopeful moment of, of reconciliation or, or recovery. And so three things in the context of Jerusalem that, that uh, particularly struck me that I wanted to share briefly is that heritage is increasingly the target, as it were, of, of conflict. Uh, it's, think of the former Yugoslavia and Bosnia in particular, people have talked about herbicide, the way that you attacked the opponent was specifically to sort of um, destroy their valued heritage, which was a way of undermining their sense of identity, their sense of self, their sense of community. So it wasn't just atrocities committed against people, but also against their heritage, which was as or, you know, similarly destructive on their sense of, of self or community. The second thing that I think has also happened is that heritage itself has become tool or an actor within conflict. And conflict can be carried out through heritage. And Jerusalem, that's a particular example where quite extreme <coughs> groups, often working, um, supported by the state, but effectively, ostensibly, you know, working to, to their own ends and so on, are reshaping the city by, through archaeology, for example. You can use archaeology to sort of re reveal things, and you can, you know, it's supposed to be a sort of scientific process. But it's very much about land grabbing potentially, or expropriating land. You know, once you say that this is of national or international significance, what local people might do there and so on becomes secondary. In fact, you need to prioritize something which has become of, of international value. Uh, and to the point where heritage can really contribute to a reconfiguration of an entire urban landscape and giving it a new meaning. And of course, the sort of physicality of heritage can contribute to giving that a sort of objective quality. You know, a you start with a narrative, but then you want to sort of legitimate it and objectify it, and you can do it through poetry and so on, but you can also do it, doing, you can do it through, through, through building. And, and it's very often that in those narratives you say, well, you can touch this wall where also King David might have been, or with you know, such and such a prophet and so on. Like it's an extraordinary power, particularly when it's tied to religious narratives too. Okay, these sort of three things, it's heritage as a target, it's an actor, 
but also a potential weapon, as it were, quite an aggressive weapon. So it's, a, it's another way of, of, of pursuing conflict. Okay. So that would be some observations about uh, the nature of conflict and the use of heritage in a, in a situation of, uh, of, of deepening conflict. Now, the Polish-German border is interesting, and I specifically looked at border towns, towns that used to be united and then were divided as a result of the political, territorial reconfiguration of, of Central Europe, and uh, the situation now where on the, the German-Polish border there, there's sort of these townhouse that look stare at each other across, across the border and are an accidental result of, of this territorial reconfiguration. Um, and, and you think, okay, well, the, the Second World War is quite a long way away now, and you have a context of the European Union, you've got a very significant treaty, which is now 25 years old, between Germany and Poland, so there's a significant sort of context of stability within which those towns could find commonalities, could reconstruct uh, a, a sort of sense of sharedness, a transnational sense of sharedness. And heritage might be one of those ways, and it is indeed something that is used for, for, for that purpose. But I think what is important to remember, and that goes back to this issue of context, is that these situations are all fundamentally always asymmetrical. They're sort of presented as these two sides, and you know, they both have a legitimate claim, and we ought to sort of you know, address the needs of, of both. But that happens in the context of a, of a significant asymmetry in power. You know, one side will, will typically either lose out or, or, or um, feel abused, feel uh, at a significant disadvantage. And while old conflicts might be displaced, new conflicts tend to sort of emerge. So suddenly the wealth differential between Poland and Germany it, it, it introduces a new dynamic, a, a new kind of sense of um, resentment or, 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 or mutual blame. Then I think even in situations of relative stability, you always have this tension between local and international. And our very notion of heritage, and world heritage in particular, privileges the sort of international gaze. And of course, local people also cultivate that because they'll, in order to get any money for the projects that they're involved in, they'll have to sort of valorize the heritage they're dealing with. This is particularly fine church, this is particularly important. And they always tend to also, at least local elites tend to, to, to look towards um, the potential economic gain of, of, of tourists, tourism. Uh, and that very rarely takes into account local identities. And of course, local people are the people who you know, ins or immediately, as it were, suffer or benefit from, from the reconfiguration of such heritage. So that, I think, is a tension that, that is always there. And quite often, the idea is that, well, there is a post-conflict situation now, and we want to sort of improve the situation. And so there's plenty of money, sort of peace money, that is thrown at these situations. And, and neutral heritage, in particular, is seen as a very positive thing. So you sort of hark back to some distant Irish past that everyone could sort of relate to. And quite often that's very made up and, 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 and is, is typically lack, lacks authenticity and, and people can sort of, local people tend to see th right through that. And often, as it were, people sort of buy into that notion of something more inclusive and transnational, but they use it in very partisan <coughs> ways. So there typically is a lot of suspicion about, for example, in the, the Polish-German border towns about the local German municipality getting EU funds to restore a particular park or monument there's always that sense that they're, 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 they're selling a certain story to the outside world, but they're using it in very particular ways. And, and there's that culture of the zero-sum game, that what is to the advantage of one side is necessarily my disadvantage. It's very hard to get out of that sort of deadlock. And I think the final issue that I'd like to, to raise is the question of, of time. That if you want communities that have been traumatized to build a sense of commonality or, or even build a kind of dialogue about difficulty and trauma, 
they need a lot of time. That you need controversy, you need stalemate. It, it takes a lot of time to be able to reappropriate a particular church that may have been destroyed and, and is no longer in use and to re reconstruct it so that it's meaningful to both sides. And that goes completely against the grain of how funding works. If you get a grant from the European Union, you've got to deliver it in five years. It's got to, you've got to have material results. And that's precisely what, what local people don't do. You know, they need 20, 30 years. So they need the money, but they also need time. And that, that goes against the logic of, of such, such funding. And most importantly, these sites need a kind of urban integration. They need to be part of a sort of broader set of activities. And, and, and that's precisely where the profession of conservationists and architects, to some extent, um, is the biggest problem. Because they're trained to protect physical heritage from people and modernity and whatever else. They're not trained to make cons conservation part of local interests, necessarily. They're trained to sort of display it. But primarily, they're interested in, in protecting um, uh, uh, sites from, from development. So I think this issue, the disconnect between the different sort of times of, of what local needs versus international or national needs and this issue of um, what conservationists and heritage practitioners are trained um, to do. So these are some thoughts I hope I haven't exceeded my time. Thank you very much. <laughs>talk about the role of perpetrators narratives in uh, rewriting history uh, following the periods of conflict and mass atrocities and I will particularly focus on uh, the Turkish state's uh, violence against Kurds in Turkey. Um, confession of a wrong thing is generally regarded as uh, crucial for both legal and moral reasons as it acknowledges the wrong thing and supposedly addresses guilt and responsibility. In an atmosphere of taboo and silence, the mere fact that one is speaking about state violence appears as a deliberate act against it. But confessing past violence does not necessarily lead to acknowledging, uh, acknowledgement of its wider implications. On the contrary, confessions often present a complex picture of legitimization, justification, glorification, disavowal, and individualization of state violence. So while avowing the wrongdoing committed, they simultaneously disavow it through various rhetorical strategies. So this is more the case in uh, confession of state crime, mainly because of the collective and bureaucratic nature of, uh, nature of state uh, violence and the difficulty to assert an individual responsibility. So the confessions I want to refer today, uh, they concerned atrocities committed against Kurds during 1990s when the conflict between the Turkish state and the Kurdistan Workers' Party, PKK, was, one of, uh, was at one of its peaks. So following the start of the conflict in 1984 and uh, after the introduction of the state of emergency regime in 1987, Turkish state increasingly resorted to extra-legal and illegal methods of warfare, uh, using death squads and paramilitary groups uh, to suppress the Kurdish population. Special units within the gendarmerie and the police together with the paramilitary groups um, and some far-right groups, uh, committed mass atrocities, including torture, forced disappearances, political killings, and forced displacement, and evacuation um, of villages and destruction of villages. Um, and, uh, but despite that, despite the scale of the atrocities, there has been no official mechanism to account for this, and except a handful of ineffective and inconclusive 
uh, criminal cases and some parliamentary inquiry commissions which haven't gone anywhere. So despite the official denial of atrocities, criminalization of opposition, media censorship, and widespread impunity, the last decade in Turkey can hardly be defined as silence. On the contrary, there has been a proliferation of speech uh, on state violence. So apart from, you know, there are human rights reports, media reports, victims' testimonies, but apart from that, we have, we have also seen an increase in uh, memoirs of uh, state and military officers. Uh, on their role in the conflict. And there have also been public confessions uh, to the media uh, by both lower-ranked and higher-ranked um, officials. <coughs> so what happened was not uh, a complete silencing of speech, but rather is control and regulation. So there have been a series of crucial confessions, but I want to just briefly mention some uh, of the most important ones. Uh, so confessions of a former PKK member turned intelligence officer, a special forces police officer, and former head of security. So their confessions have been widely circulated, and after that several criminal cases were opened, but they haven't, uh, again, led anywhere. So, uh, so I, I, of course, because of the time limitations, I'll just very briefly mention the dominant uh, leitmotifs in their, in their confessions. In Aigam, for example, what we have is a remorseful um, intelligence officer, uh, a collaborator, he was a PKK member in the past. And what he does is he carefully constructs his uh, life history to leave him faultless. So everything that, I mean, he's joining to the PKK and then he's collaborating with the state, he's torturing, etc. all of them appear as inevitable acts um, uh, because of the way he constructs his, his story. And uh, also, he kind of self-victimizes himself, uh, like most of the time talking about the troubles that he went through, the psychological troubles, or the f uh, financial difficulties, uh, or the uh, pressure he faced uh, in the military. And he, uh, he most of the time refers to the threats he received, and that he talks about, you know, that he says that he just couldn't leave, it was not possible for him to leave, and he had to continue as a torturer and hitman. Um, and another uh, officer, Charkin, a special forces uh, police officer, again, he also appears as a remorseful one. But what he does is he often makes references to how he was cheated in the name of patriotism and counterterrorism, and how he was used by his seniors and how he was later abandoned. Uh, regardless of whether he's sincere or not, he tries to overcome his negative image uh, by presenting himself as a morally upright person who has realized the mistake he has done, who wants to correct it, and who wants to uh, contribute to, to justice and pay the price for his acts. But uh, despite that, uh, his guilt and responsibility is conditional on the prosecution of those who gave the orders. He keeps repeating that. Un unless they are prosecuted, he's, he doesn't, he, yeah, he wouldn't even uh, go to prison. And, and what happened was after the he was prosecuted, he withdrew his confessions because he was the only one in the case who was, who was arrested. And we, uh, we also have this former head of security. Uh, he is known as a torturer among left-wing groups, but he came to public prominence through the books he has written and through his revel revelations in parliamentary commissions, in the media, etc., What he does is he positions himself as an honest and brave state official who, official who would take risks to reveal dirty relations within the state. And what he, uh, the dominant leitmotif in his account is blaming the system. 
So despite his implicit acknowledgement of torture, he argues that at the time, torture was the only intelligence gathering tool uh, that the security units used, and the logicality in his book linking the failures of the state to the deficiencies in the system with regards to intelligence gathering tools, training of security officers, and corruption within state institutions, and all these work to relinquish him of any responsibility. So he, he disappears from the narrative, constructing the system as the main perpetrator, and the rest as cogs in the machine. So it is it's common for perpetrators of political violence to alleviate uh, the burden of guilt and place part or whole of the responsibility on others or on the circumstances. Positioning themselves as only foot soldiers or um, following the orders or as cogs in the machine, they say, if I hadn't done it, somebody else could have. Or if you were in my place, you would do the same. So presenting the act as inevitable, uh, they dehistoricize and objectify the guilt, inviting the audience to share it. So such an argument works to obscure the abyss between the actuality of what they did and potentiality of what others might have done. In that sense, their narratives help them to eliminate responsibility without thinking about the gravity of their, of their actions. So having said that, while individuals must help be responsible for the acts they committed, that this doesn't mean that the system which turned its citizens into cogs can be left out of account. So it's true that in cases of political violence, there is a wider state mechanism at work uh, that produces these criminal acts. Uh, that's one of the reasons why the audiences can empathize with uh, these perpetrators. Uh, but the problem with their references to the system is that they are often elusive and ambiguous. So there is always something beyond the reach of the audiences. Uh, complicated relations between uh, state institutions and illegal bodies and personal and collective profits from the war. Uh, in Turkey, for example, the system that they refer is the deep state. I mean, this, uh, uh, the, I mean, extra-legal relations within the state with the paramilitary groups, with the mafia, uh, etc. So the system in their case becomes an empty word with no real reference. So. Um, I mean, confessional narratives can take a like, number of different forms, ranging from remorseful to sadistic ones. Uh, there are sadistic ones as well. I mean, like there, there is one example in Chile, for example, the torturer who I mean, talked about all the methods that he used. Uh, I mean, he acknowledged, but not necessarily took any responsibility. So differing in form, what they have in common in terms of their effect is while acknowledging the wrongdoing they committed, they simultaneously efface guilt and responsibility through narratives of self-excuse, self-justification, narratives naturalizing and objectifying the wrongdoing and guilt, narratives of self-transformation uh, and self-victimization. So while a confession is an, is an avowal of a wrongdoing, it immediately retracts what, it, um, what, it, what is uttered. So Derrida says something uh, on his remarks on Rousseau's confessions that one can no longer dis decide between two gestures, accusation or excuse. Um, so I'll finish. Uh, considering the presumed link between confession, truth, and reconciliation, and the wide attention that the perpetrators receive by the media and the audiences, they gain undue power over history, and their confessions sanitizing the atrocities by using euphemisms and minimizing the sufferings of the victims constitute further violence over the victims. And receiving wide attention, as cases from South Africa to Argentina show, uh, their narratives significantly shape how the past state violence is received by the wider audiences. So in case of state violence, basically, I argue that 
They do not necessarily shed a light on our understanding of state violence, but rather complicates the issues of guilt and responsibility in the end effacing accountability and leading to further impunity. Thank you. Good, thank you very much. And um, uh, Kayindi, would you like to uh, tell us now about um, how we should solve the problem of Eurocentric debt? <laughs> uh, in, eight, in eight minutes, right? Eight minutes, yeah. Um, no, so I think that all of those accounts tell you quite clearly that history is both subjective, a narrative, and something which we tell usually to make ourselves feel better about what we're currently doing. And also, history is really important in understanding what we are currently doing, right? The narratives that we draw on historically really shape what happened today. And you can just go back as far as, as Brexit to understand this, right? You see the Vote Leave campaign that, that peddles this myth that Britain was this great nation that stood on its own and was great in the world and, and doesn't need anyone else because, you know, we, we were so, such a wonderful, wonderful nation, right? Well, this is a complete and utter myth that never, never, it doesn't, and the point is it doesn't need to be true or not true. It just needs to be something that people believe, right? And that is the battle of history, and we talk about the battle of rewriting the narrative because there is a particular narrative around nationalism, and I, and I would uh, maybe um, disagree with my colleague to an extent that Britain is also really, really good at nationalism. But, and, and, and the difference with British nationalism is very subtle. We just don't talk about it. It's almost like it doesn't exist. Like, right? At least with Ireland, they are, we're Irish nationalists. In Britain, British nationalism is there. It's, it's, it, it doesn't take much to, uh, if you just trouble it a little bit, you'll find that the, all the currents of British nationalism run very, 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 very deep in our society. In fact, um, this happened the other day, so I wasn't going to talk about this, but as it happened recently, I will, I will bring this up. Um, I, just, I did a video for, for Newsnight uh, thinking about the anthem protests in America. And you know there's, there's athletes who are kneeling because, the, because of racism in America, they're saying we should kneel and protest, protest the, the, the anthem. And they're saying they're not protesting the flag or protesting the nation. I probably kicked it a little bit further and said, well, why not protest the flag? Why not protest the nation? Um, if you're in a nation which has been uh, racist from its beginning to its end, uh, why on earth would you not want to protest it, right? Why do we, why do we drape ourselves in these symbols uh, that really have a very problematic history? And the same is true in the United Kingdom. I mean, the, the, the British flag and the, and the anthem may mean a lot to a lot of people, but to a lot of people from my community, this, this does not mean anything positive, right? I've, I've never stood for the anthem. I will never stand for the anthem because of this, because my history, my experience of Britain has been, has been mostly terrible, right? Historically, ancestrally, and currently, right? Um, but to say this, so I said this, I said this and it's out there as a video out there, and unsurprisingly, um, I've had a, literally a week, a week of abuse, I mean proper abuse, like high level abuse, uh, which I expected, and I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a big gentleman, so I can, I can deal with that abuse, but um, it, it's telling, right? Because actually, and I'm, I'm probably gonna do a research paper about the abuse because um, it, <laughs> <'cause> it really <laughs> does tell you a lot about British nationalism. When we had this discussion about doing the, um, the video, the people, they were like, well, nobody really protests the anthem is not really important and nobody really thinks about the flag, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But you will be surprised. People were very, 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 very upset. And their, their, their expression of their upset kind of, kind of tells you a lot about the problems of history that we have, which extend across to our curriculum. So one of the first things which was, which was said was, well, one, Britain isn't racist. Britain's not as racist as other places. Stop complaining. You are lucky to live in a country which is so wonderful, 
right? Now, when you have uh, Theresa May, of all people, telling you that Britain is structurally racist, then at some point you must have to admit that there is a problem of racism. Right? So and I could, I, I was, as a sociologist, I could, I, could I could list off all of the problems in Britain, but I won't do it. Right? So there is, a, there is just the just ignorance of evidence uh, straight away. Uh, the second thing was um, I, should, I should be grateful. Right? Like I can just leave. Like I, if, if I'm not happy, I should leave, and I should be happy for the sacrifices that people made so that I could have um, my good job, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And here you find straight away that when we understand the nation of Britain, um, typically it's this kind of island story, right? So the people that fought in the war are white people, right? The people who did all this stuff and built the NHS are white people. This is, and I should be grateful as an immigrant, a children of immigrants coming into the country to benefit from all this. Well, that's utter nonsense. I mean, literally, utterly nonsense. Britain, this notion that Britain was, a, as, was stood by itself is crazy. Britain was an empire. Britain is only very recently not an empire for most of Britain's history. It was an empire, the where the sun never set, where 25% of the whole entire surface of the world contributed to the development of Britain. Uh, my, before my grandparents and parents came to the United Kingdom, uh, the island of Britain, they'd already contributed to Britain. Uh, through slavery. I mean, slavery builds port cities, slavery builds a banking system, slavery is the start of finance capitalism. Many, many, many things that we have today are direct legacy of the slavery of my ancestors. The idea that I should be grateful to people who are not my ancestors for Britain is frankly nonsensical. Right? When my, why, why are we here? We are here because we are children of empire. My dad came to, my grandma came to Britain in the 50s, and on her passport it said, subject of the British crown. Literally subject of the British crown. She was a, she was part of Britain. If you look at if you look at the World Wars, for example, all these people who died and shed blood. Uh, equally, on the black side of my family and the white side of my family, I had people who fought and died in both of these wars. So the idea that Britain was this, this this standalone place which I should be grateful to be in is frankly ludicrous, right? But that is a big a big thing you get a big a big narrative around this. The other problematic uh, narrative, particularly relating to history. I, there's a tweet, I think I remember it, I got, uh, which was the most um, retweeted and liked tweet um, in response to my video. And what it said was the, something along the lines of, the British literally used to um, send ships to free African slaves, learn some effing history. Which, <laughs> I didn't really know how to respond to that, right? Because <laughs> you do have this narrative where we kind of make this place that Britain ended slavery. Britain, you know, went and freed all these people. What, what are you complaining about? Britain was wonderful, wonderful, wonderful um, in terms of the slave trade. Ignoring the fact that about roughly half of all enslaved Africans in the 18th century who were transported from Africa to the Caribbean and the Americas came on British ships. Britain was one of the worst slave trading nations full stop. Yet we take a little bit of history and we celebrate that bit, right? And ignore the rest of it because that doesn't fit into this uh, narrative of the nation. And so I actually talk about particularly whiteness, but in this concept I say nationalism. Nationalism is more like a, a psychosis than anything else, right? It, it, you, you, there's, so I, I'm, I'm getting all this abuse and I'm thinking, well, how do I respond to this? There's no point in responding. I mean, at some point, you just got to admit that there's, 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 there's nothing I could possibly say. There is no piece of evidence I could possibly put out there which is going to change this view. Because this is, this, is, this, is this is a very dominantly accepted view. Not completely, but dominantly accepted. And, then, and, and, and there's a paper I've written about this. How, how, do we, how do we memorialize slavery? How do we think about enslavement? And by basically saying this, the, the uh, remembrance of, of the period of slavery is like a delusion in a psychosis. 
So what does a psychosis do? The point of a psychosis is to make you think that you are mentally well, right? And so you'll have your completely irrational thinking, it won't make any sense, but you'll have these delusions which say, oh yeah, no, I'm, f I'm fine, I'm fine, yeah, 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 it's all good, right? And this is our memory of slavery, I mean really, this is our memory of slavery, it's what it does, this is, this is how it, we can have this kind of, even the, the former president, uh, Prime Minister Cameron, Britain is the country that ended slavery. I mean, this is how we actually remember it, right, as a nation. Uh, Britain is this place that can stand alone. This was not an empire. It was, a, it was this wonderful, wonderful solitary place. We can go back to that, right? Those are delusionary thoughts. But they're delusionary thoughts that have very meaningful, impactful consequences. Right? So um, I'll end on this one because if you think about some of these things and where do these things come from, they come from our curriculum, right? They come from our, or lack of curriculum, if you like, but certainly our curriculum. I went through a whole entire, I did history at GCSE, history at A-level, I did uh, psychology, I did sociology, I never learned anything about empire. I don't remember any, anybody ever teaching me anything about empire. And I think most children will go through this with exactly the same experience. So Britain's empire is probably the most important part of British history and we do not actually teach that it exists. And then we wonder why people don't understand um, con our contemporary situation, right? And so this is one of the reasons we started the, the Black Studies degree. So in terms of Black Studies, and, and as, a, as a space where we focus on the contributions of Africa and the African diaspora, and there's been criti critiques of it, that is it ghettoizing it, and is it separating it, et cetera, et cetera. But I, I've, I've been to, and I've spoken at the uh, social theory conferences, international, so actually the last time I was here at Cambridge, international social theory conference, and it was, the one of the worst experiences of my entire life. And I do not exaggerate that this, this kind of nation story, this, 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 the best example is the future, the future of um, social theory was a panel of seven white men. It wasn't even women involved. I mean, literally, it literally erased everything. And the whole notion came around social theory is European, social theory is the Enlightenment, social theory is this particular Eurocentric thing. And this is the International Social Theory Conference. So we kind of created a space which is kind of outside that, to say actually let's think about this differently. Let's have a space where we can come together in a different way and think about and reconstruct a different narrative of history. And I'll very end on this little plug, because one of the things I'm involved in is an organization who's trying, trying to open a nursery. And we've created a kind of a revisionist history booklet, uh, 17 figures of the, of the black liberation struggle, actually. This is what I, I write my, most of my work on. Uh, and these are two pounds, and I always have a, have a bag of them if anybody wants to contribute <laughs> to the struggle afterwards. But it's these kind of things where we need to completely rethink and, uh, and reshape and rewrite the narrative because they're hugely problematic and have massively negative consequences on how we go forward. Thank you. I said we had a diverse panel. I didn't even begin to know how diverse <laughs> it was going to prove. But uh, a huge amount there that's uh, ranged over so many issues. One thing that interests me about what you've all said is, um, is this, if you like, almost a dilemma, really. Um, it's clear from each of you, though perhaps less from Max, but certainly from all the rest, that your personal experience, your subjectivity, has played a large part in choosing a particular topic and pursuing it, because these are gut issues for you. Yet, as scholars, you have to try and um, control or manage 
that subjectivity in order to create uh, statements and writing that will have the chance of commanding respect. So how do you handle that sort of challenge, the balancing act between subjectivity and objectivity, if it wants to use rather old-fashioned terms? Would anybody like to comment on that? Um, I guess I don't engage with the debate on subjectivity and objectivity. And I think on a real level, I think that once we accept that knowledge is subjective, knowledge is political, there is a particular, even the idea of objectivity itself has a particular politics behind it. The best I can do is I can outline my politics very, very clearly, and I'll tell you exactly what I think, and I'll tell you the analysis which I've done and the research that I've done, and, and I will leave it up to you to decide whether you want to engage with it or listen to it or not. I think for me that is quite an important part of that, and even in, with this idea of history. So there is no objective history. There's, a, there's different versions and different narratives which will mobilise different people at different times. Um, but do you wish to command uh, wider respect or and, and uh, assent to what you're saying? Because presumably that is part of the project, isn't it? I mean, I guess the, the bigger... For, for me, the part of the project is to narrate a particular understanding of society which can mobilise people t in order to create a better society. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's not going to reach everybody, but hopefully it will reach enough people. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I think the, the problem is, you know, when uh, the question of subjectivity comes up when, uh, more than a black or minority ethnic person you know, con conducts their research, but not necessarily in the case of, I mean, white, male, European researchers. I, I don't know so if I, that's I necessarily true. I, yeah. mean, I'm what I'm I think we're talk, all talking mm -hmm. as, I mean, we, we get into pieces of work because there are personal reasons sure. for it. Mm -hmm. And what I'm saying is, in this question of rewriting history, I mean, how do one balance the, the personal and the scholarly, mm -hmm. if we take away the terms of subjectivity and, and objectivity? Max, what was your, as it were, personal um, imperatives mean, behind your research? The work on Jerusalem was, was an accident, so far as it's a job that I <laughs> managed to get. Um, I mean, I have some you know, Jewish ancestors and so on, so I mean, that, that certainly. I mean, I, I visited Jerusalem sort of as a tourist and, and had a certain kind of view, and I was very grateful for doing the research because it, 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 you know, it allowed me, it vaccinated me from further being subject to sort of, uncritically, to, to, mm. to, to, to narratives, furious narratives where you exclude others without even realizing and so on, or, or you see, see yourself in the position of victimhood when, when it's more complex. I mean, I'm also half Polish, half German, so that was an interesting yeah. journey, and that was more conscious to some extent. And it was also a way of punishing my father for not teaching me Polish, and so I forced <laughs> him to come with me and, and, uh, and interpret for me. And he's not an academic, and it was very amusing to see him sort of, you know, his sense of what was subjective, and you've seen initially he started off by just teaching everyone what they should think, and then he told me what he, they should have said rather than what they said and so on. And eventually we got to sort of a, <laughs> a more scholarly, but, but still, you know. And, and I think ultimately, I think if you just raise your awareness, I mean, you know, as you said, I mean, ultimately you have a position, there's a politics involved. Mm. And, uh, and I think it's sometimes quite useful that when, you're, when somehow your own identity is at stake explicitly, I think you simply become more aware of that. Whereas I think if you study a remote period of the past, you might, mm. you can more comfortably assume that position, whereas in fact you're also telling a narrative. So it, it, there's an advantage to some Ruth, do you want to comment on anything? Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, my father was uh, an historian <coughs> who was a product of what we would have called a mixed marriage, and 
in those days. Um, his father was an English Protestant. His mother was this crazy Irish Republican. <laughs> and um, he became an historian absolutely wedded to the notion that Irish history should not be the regurgitating of the narrative of Irish republicanism, but that it should be the history of every person in Ireland. And therefore, it should take in the Protestant traditions, every tradition, Jews, everybody. He was diverse before anybody ever used the word. And it was a hell of an uphill struggle. I mean, a tremendously uphill struggle. Um, but he swore by objectivity. And I mean, I remember one terrible family row and my brother, who was a committed socialist, he did become a, an historian later, um, but I shouldn't use the word. They were having a, an awful row. And my brother um, said, Feck, well, he said more than that. Um, Feck objectivity, he said. And my father was outraged. I mean, he'd never heard, said, my father was okay about abuse, but to abuse objectivity, absolutely horrifying. So I was brought up thinking that that was actually our totem, you know, that's what you had to strive for. And I will say that, um, you know, certainly as a journalist dealing with Northern Ireland, I'm pretty even-handed in dishing out um, the criticism. You know, I've, I've written things about UK unionists like me a lot better than um, nationalists do. But that's because they're better at taking criticism, really, in a peculiar way, because the Protestant tradition is more self-examining. You know, the Presbyterians fall out all the time amongst themselves. So criticism is a norm. In a way, it isn't in the Catholic background, a Catholic tradition. So um, if I ever find a fact that doesn't fit my original suppositions, I would never suppress it. My father would haunt me forever. I desperately try to be objective. And on the whole, historians think I am. So yeah, I think you can't ever be objective, but you can strive to be objective. And in fairness to my friend here, uh, he certainly doesn't pretend to try. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, I think we've, uh, we've warmed you up now. Um, uh, the mics will come round. If you'd like to indicate uh, that you want to uh, ask a question, put your hand up and uh, we'll take it from there. Right. <laughs> Any hands up? Stick them higher because I'm uh, I'm not seeing any at the moment. So oh, sorry, where? Uh, right. Okay. Thank you.
unless the white person was a sort of gang leader in a very specific context. That has changed dramatically. This does not mean I'm saying there's no racism. For example, I would certainly say there is an offense driving while black, although that isn't actually in the rubric. I'd just like to make that comment. Thank you. Okay, do we have any, let's take a few questions and then um, uh, get the panel to respond. Other questions? There's one, there's one there. Sorry. In the corner. All right, yes, thank you. <coughs> this one for Ruth Dudley Edwards. Um, I spent a lot of time in the west of Ireland, near Castle Bar in Mayo, where a few years ago, um, what is basically a, a, a war memorial has gone up, um, on which we inscribed all the names of those who fell fighting against British Army wars, but it's not called the War Memorial, it's called the Peace Park. Um, and it's, you know, a, a, a ceremony that held then is very much part of sort of public life. Um, but there's a, still a certain sort of nervousness around it. And people, um, a few little anecdotes, I was in a shop the other day, and um, the man behind the counter was chatting about where he was from and so on. He was saying, oh, it's my father fought in the army. He fought in the, you know, I can't remember what it was. But before he told me this, he looked around to check that there were no other customers um, in the shop. And I expect surprise that anyone, um, you know, it's a difficulty to have a father who had fought at the best Hitler. He said, you know, surely people are proud of having um, parents or grandparents who fought against Hitler. And he said, no, it's sort of a bit difficult still. Um, and this is in the West, so I suspect things in Dublin are rather different. And I, I'd like to ask you sort of how much further you think Okay, an another question? Yes, there's a lady at the back up there. Okay, well, I think we've got three questions there, and probably they are mostly, each one was probably directed more to um, one particular uh, member. Candy, do you have any comments you want to make uh, about the first comment? Um, yeah, I think, I think it's a perfect example of what I'm talking about, right? So I'm a sociologist, and I, b I do believe that there are, you know, social facts. Things happen. You could go through history and say, this happened, this happened, this happened. You can count things, and I use I draw on inequality quite a lot and say, look, this is the truth, this is the truth. These things happen, right? Um, it is definitely true that in America, certainly in terms of 
Um, integration is far more integrated. People attitudes have changed to the point you can have an African American president. But then you can. It is also true that mass incarceration. There are more African American men in prison today than there were enslaved at the end of slavery in America. Um, food stamp usage under Obama went up by 300% for African Americans. There are huge problems in terms of poverty. The public schools are more segregated today than they were before the desegregation of public schools in America. And this is the point I'm making here: is that we can draw on these different social facts, and though, uh, but that isn't going to be about which is objectively true and which evidence is, is the best evidence. That is basically going to be largely decided on what our politics are. And that's why I'm saying you can't separate out, even as a, as a, as a sociologist, uh, you can't separate out the political from how we analyze those facts. And so I guess for me, what I'm saying is, is if, if, if we, we acknowledge that the, the interpretation of what is existing differs from your social location, then I would always go with the truth being on the side of the oppressed. And that being the, 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 the narrative and the version of events that we, that, we, that we go with. Ruth, would you like to comment on the question from over here? I will, but just a, a footnote. I mean, I could f we could fight forever. Um, <laughs> very entertaining it would be, I think. Um, but can I just say, that, uh, the audit that Theresa May ordered did find that the most misfortunate people were white boys. And uh, part of that is because so many of them have been taught by guilty liberals who would never say a good word about the British and went on and on and on about the wickedness of empire. So, <laughs> um, the other point about the lady, from, the lady who's talking about Castle Bar, I think there's a very strong memory in rural places particularly of the burning out of the big house. That was a favorite thing. This really touches on what you were talking about as well, Max, where um, Irish Republicans showed their disapproval of, um, of British colonialism, of, um, well, general language really, by burning down the houses of people who had had land. Now, of course, these days, with a different kind of heritage game, we're busy building them up again, and, and large amounts of money have been spent on bringing them back to their, their glory. So I think there's a, a strange feeling that you could get into trouble. The IRA was actually pro-Nazi during the Second World War, which makes it very difficult for some of them who are true believers to deal with it. Um, that memorial, I mean, it's very telling that it's called a Peace Park. I think we've moved on a great deal. There is a wall in Glasnevin Cemetery now, and admittedly that is <coughs> Dublin City, which has the names of everybody who died in the 1916 revolution, including soldiers, police, civilians, and rebels. And there's been a small part of the population have been very annoyed about that because they think it's disgraceful to memorialize uh, Brits, is how they put it. But I mean, that's a huge leap forward, like the Peace Park. But it takes an awfully long time. But I can say that having originally got an awful lot of criticism and abuse when I brought out my book on Patrick Pierce, um, and then when I was writing uh, very critical stuff about republicanism, these days, you can have really, really intense but honest conversations that really would have been unthinkable. So the addressing, for instance, of the people wiped out of history and the giving them their due 
become a very much a part of the Irish narrative. So I think you would find that they'll be afraid of uh, a tiny handful of people who might do something awful to the Peace Park. And it, but in general, it's just a hangover about not wanting to bring the mad people on you. Good. Yeshim, would you like yes. to answer that? Question? Sure. Uh, well, uh, I mean, in Turkey, well, official discourse dominates everywhere. I mean, the education, I mean, uh, the media, everywhere. And it's very difficult to challenge that. Uh, but, I mean, of course, people use various strategies to uh, position themselves as, you know, kind of objectives, scores, researchers, to be, uh, I mean, taken as objective by the wider audiences. I mean, they either do that through uh, joining, like, organizations known as objective, like, you know, international organizations, etc., or doing academic work. But even that doesn't stop. Because you can still, I mean, be labeled as, uh, you know, your objective research still could be labeled as left-wing propaganda. I mean, at the moment, for example, there are 1,128 academics who are being prosecuted for, uh, for a petition that they signed uh, two years ago. I'm one of the signatories. And the petition was just, I mean, you know, just as using our democratic rights, so we signed the petition which was calling the state to restart the peace negotiations because at the time there were huge clashes in the cities affecting like civilians, several hundred uh, civilians died. And for that now, uh, you know, thousands of, you know, thousands of academics are being prosecuted under anti-terror law. So it's quite, you know, it's quite difficult to challenge. Uh, and I mean, apart from the Kurdish issue, I mean, let's have a look at the Armenian genocide. I mean, at, I mean, several years ago, I remember uh, someone called the uh, president of the time Armenian, <coughs> and the other one opened the case. I mean, filed a lawsuit against the other for insults. <laughs> you know, this is you know, apart from I mean, let alone acknowledging the you know the genocide, what happened, or let alone just conducting research, you know, allowing research on that. You know, they still continue using the word as, um, as an insult word. So it is, I don't know if I can answer, but history is certainly still being written by, uh, by the victors, let's say, and it's quite uh, difficult to challenge without being labeled as um, you know, subject or left-wing propaganda. Yeah. Max, do you want to add anything, or shall I take no. some more questions? No, okay, fine. Uh, so, uh, yes, gentleman there with the uh, red... Pull over. Okay, so uh, question over there. Gentleman with his hand up. Hi, um, do you think there's a problem with the idea of uh, trying to repair divisions and from conflicts can sometimes be equated with whitewashing the past and trying to you know, pretend that what, ha uh, you know, what happened didn't actually happen? Uh, and sort of the idea that um, if you keep examining it, you can keep reopening these old wounds, or do you think that's about 
crucial in order to, to close the wheels eventually. You know, you talked a little about how it takes a lot of time. Thank you. Uh, another question? Yes, gentleman there, just by you there. Hi, I was um, interested in the um, kind of recent announcement of the fiscal surrounding the European Union policy um, and the kind of the generalisation of that period in time, which um, has been criticised, so not particularly really in the case. Um, and so I was interested in seeing the kind of the absurdity of some of the claims that were just before the garbage. Okay, uh, do we want, we've got one more maybe and then, uh, yes, lady there. Well, that's a nice small question to end. <laughs> um, right, okay, so we've got questions about the way, if, if history is skewed towards the victor, does that make it harder to learn lessons from history, which I suppose also raises for you all the question of whether there are lessons to learn from history. Um, the, the reconciliation imperative and whether that means that we uh, somehow whitewash the past which raises a larger question about you know, the balance between remembering and forgetting um, as part of, if you like, uh, uh, successful social therapy. I mean, what exactly is, it, is, is the need to dig up the past and the past crimes, how far one has to address them and confront them, truth and reconciliation. Um, the, the, uh, as far as I got it, the, the sense of conflicting narratives about Europe from left and right and uh, how you deal with arguments that, um, uh, well, really you don't accept, right? In a, in a uh, that become, it's almost partly that abuse question that, that has come up before. And then, um, yeah, what should go into your ideal British <laughs> So, <laughs> any comments on any of those? <laughs> Ruth, would you like oh, to start? Yeah. Shall I have a go? <laughs> mm. uh, okay, I'll start with Brexit because it seems easiest. <laughs> <laughs> That's the kind of evening we've got. <laughs> <laughs> Brexit's easy, fine. Okay. Yes, well, I voted for Brexit. 
I know. You see, and I'm absolutely used to audiences where it's what used to be known as an H.M. Bateman moment. The, 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 he used to do cartoons about the man who said something or other which horrified an entire room. If you happen to be in liberal middle-class world, <coughs> jaws drop. Sometimes you think somebody's going to faint. Um, and all I can say is I am old, but I'm not stupid and I'm not uneducated and I don't feel left behind. I happen to think the EU has passed its useful time, and uh, I don't really want us to be part of anything which makes it almost impossible to get out of. Reminds me too much of the Soviet Union. So, and by the way, uh, all that stuff, exaggeration stuff um, from the Leave side was more than matched by all the, the fear stuff on the other side, and I really would like a little bit more honesty about the fact that there was much misrepresentation on both sides. And I don't think that it is that there is some mad myth going on with the Leavers. I think, on the whole, they think we're better out. And they think we're better off doing with the world. I don't think it's any desire to be little England. I think it's actually the opposite. So that's my views on Brexit. Um, is, his, is history skewed by the victors? Well, one of the oddities you've got in, uh, in the Irish Troubles is that um, See, the British state, I said this to Republican audiences in my time, and it's like telling a liberal audience that you voted Brexit. <coughs> I've said we were inevitably going to be part of somebody's empire because we were a tiny little island, and tiny countries always are taken over by somebody. And we were better off with the British Empire than any other one. Would you want to be taken over by the Ottoman Empire, the Portuguese, the Spaniards, Germans, uh, the Belgians? You know, just have a look. Um, by and large, the British Empire made all sorts of, did all sorts of bad things, but there was the least bad option. That doesn't go down well in Republican land because, of course, we were the most oppressed people ever. Um, so what's happened precisely because the British, and by the British I really mean the English on this one, they are so given to guilt, guilty consciences that um, they now react as if they were um, the losers rather than the victors. So you get £200 million spent on investigating Bloody Sunday, which involved 14 people being, some of them act serious, murdered, and in some cases it was manslaughter, by British soldiers. £200 million and David Cameron standing up in Parliament and apologising from the bottom of his heart for it. You've had Tony Blair, I think, ludicrously apologising for the Irish famine in the 19th century. Where do we stop? Um, I happen to think a lot of Ireland's problems can be blamed on James I um, because he set up a plantation of Ulster Scots in Ireland in the early 17th century. But you know, get over it, which is actually something I would say to my friend here as well, <laughs> <laughs> about the past. So what we've right. actually got is, sorry, we've got, we've got yeah. the troubles, yeah. the vast majority of murders were done by the IRA, and for some reason the IRA keep insisting on endless investigations of state crimes, collusion or whatever else, and the British keep giving them to them. And um, there, there's almost no um, successful prosecution of any of the terrorists who murdered ordinary, decent people over 30 years for no good reason. Have I left anything out? I don't know. <laughs> Quite a bit, but uh, we'll get to that. <laughs> Um, no, and I think this, I think that so all these, a lot of these the three questions are quite linked in terms of, you know, we want to learn from history, but we have to accept that history is, is, is if history is so skewed and not correctly <coughs> understood, then what are you going to learn from history? 
And actually, I think a lot of the examples have shown that the teaching of history, particularly teaching history statewide, what the state wants to be taught, is really a political project which teaches you particular things which it wants you to know, right? I mean, this, and this, I think we'd all accept that to some extent, even, even my colleague on, on the right here. So I think- Your friend. <laughs> a friend, 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 friend. So, <laughs> so and, I think, and I think that's all of it, and just, we just have to, and again, it's about that not objective, subjective, et cetera, et cetera, that the actual teaching of history and the understanding of history and learning from history, we have to accept that history is partial and it is from a particular perspective, right? which goes to the issue of the EU. In fact, I actually wrote an article about the EU saying, look, the EU is racist, but the alternative is worse. Let's not mythologize the EU. The EU has many, 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 many problems, um, particularly around race, actually, and around migration, et cetera, et cetera. There's huge issues with the EU. In fact, pre-Brexit, uh, um, you were having an increasing number of uh, black and Asian people in the UK who were anti-EU because of the, because of the uh, Britain's a migration policy that says that we don't want non-white migration, but we don't mind white migration. And actually, that caused lots and lots of tension. But interestingly, the, uh, the Vote Leave campaign was so obviously nationalist, so obviously toxically nationalist, that it switched and now about 70% of uh, black and Asian people voted to remain. Because we understand that when they say particular things, they say stand on our own two feet. And I'm sorry, this is about understanding the role of history. Britain was an empire until the 70s, then joined part of the European Union, and hasn't really stood on its own two feet for a very, very long time. So I guess the fear mongering, you call it that, but there is a serious question that needs to be asked. Can Britain as a small country stand on its own two feet in the global world? And that's a question that I don't know the answer to. Nobody really knows the answer to. And I, and I think this is why that, if I was gonna say, let's pick one thing that you put on the curriculum, it will be to actually understand Britain's place in the world. And Britain's place in the world, its successes in the world, its reason to support the largest economy is because of empire. It is because of empire. There is no other reason, right? Britain by itself, would ne this would never happen, right? And so, and accounting for the, the atrocities of empire is important for that. Also, accounting for the legacies of empire is also important for that as well. And, the, and unfortunately, the, there is this mentality. They even have used terms like Empire 2.0 um, in the Whitehall, Whitehall officials saying Empire 2.0. We can just go back and re-engage back with the Commonwealth. It's not going to happen. The world has changed. These are independent countries now. So there is a serious question about how Britain manage itself in the world. And if we, taught, if we had a proper understanding of, of empire and nation and of what Britain is and what Britain isn't, this would probably help us deal with those problems much, much better. Good, thank you very much. Yashim, do you have anything you want to add to any uh, of those? Well, maybe very briefly, uh, I mean, about the question of you know, how to balance remembering and forgetting. Um, I mean, th th there are now like pieces of research conducted on cases of tr I mean, transitional justice and uh, the most successful examples are the ones who combine, I mean, both trials like criminal <coughs> accountability, truth commissions, and you know, with commemorative practices. So it's really like, as long as you don't treat, you know, the it in a linear way, like you know, separating the past from the present or from the future, and you see kind of them affecting the, yeah, I mean, being together or affecting each other, then I think. Uh, I mean, th then I think the solution lies there. So basically, you, what we need is most, m like, you know, kind of holistic approach to all of those. But it is lacking in most of the cases. I mean, South Africa is kind of given as one of the most successful examples, but redistribution there has not been successful. So there is, like, always something missing from the picture, and I'm kind <coughs> of for this uh, holistic practices which combine, you know, criminal accountability with other, other transitional justice practices. Thank you. Max? 
Yeah, I mean, just like to follow on from that, and I think it's it's a very good question about this balance of, of forgetting and, and 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 remembering. And if you if you're unable to forget, it would be entirely oppressive and paralyzing. So I mean, clearly, you need to. And often, when you look at contested cities, it's precisely where people can't forget, and and where you know violent origins are continuously reenacted in, in daily life, and that's where you know there's that difficulty of, of overcoming. On the other hand, you look at, like at a, at a seat like Berlin. Move the mic, please. Excuse me. Um, if a, if you look at a yeah, is that better? Yeah. Um, if you look at a city like Berlin, uh, that obsessively remembers its sort of traumatic past and so on, and there's there's some you know attempts to sort of deal with the issue of remembering a perpetrator as well as remembering you know, victims, and it's generally more popular to remember victims. But you can also say that it's a kind of it's become a sort of first of all it's commodified. <coughs> Uh, and it becomes a kind of urban spectacle. And secondly, it's it's another way of forgetting, actually. Remembering is a way of, well, we remember that now. <laughs> We've, we spent the 200 million quid. It's a way of absolving yourself. And that's why people quite happily, wealthy states happily spend hundreds of millions because they don't know, well, they, we dealt with it. Stop, get over it. And what else do you want us to do except for a formal apology and having spent lots of money on a vast area in central Berlin with a huge memorial? And if you look at how people <coughs> behave around that memorial that Peter Eisenman designed, it's, qu it's quite disturbing sometimes. <laughs> and, and when you're left with that parents, you want children to play in that <coughs> area because you, it's a sort of hopeful image. Uh, and yet, I've seen people kind of take their wedding photograph with the, the, the memorial in the background because it's sort of visually appealing. And you think, I mean, it's extraordinary how invisible memorialization can be. There's vast Soviet memorials in Berlin that are, that are completely forgotten. Hundreds of thousands, millions of Russian soldiers died, and they sh they, they're very well worth remembering. And yet the city ignores it. So it's quite hard to know what, what to do. Having said that, I think in certain circumstances, people are actually, you know, say, for example, on the Polish-German border, you know, I've seen evidence of the two communities coming together, confronting <coughs> difficult paths. So this whitewashing is absolutely doesn't go down well with local people. People see through that. But when they're able to appropriate the space, in particular and able to reinvent it together. There's some kind of conversation that goes on if it's shared, you know, rather than just as it were Irish nationalists either beating themselves up or praising themselves, but if it's a genuine moment of shared. And I think you know, the sort of things that you say, outrageous things about Irish nationalists, you can only do so because you're, you're Irish. I mean, as a British person, you couldn't get away with that. So it, it, I think you, if, if that is done uh, uh, collaboratively, and if you're then able to replace what you remember with a kind of reconstruction and reinvention, then I think there is a possibility of overcoming and eventually forgetting without having necessarily repressed the memory. Ruth, you want to come back on something? Yes, I wanted to put in a good word for historians. <laughs> <laughs> I do actually think that trying the, as best you can to write the truth about the past is worth doing. And there has been an enormous amount of patient good work on Ireland by Irish historians, British historians, Americans, all sorts of people, um, French, German. Ireland has too much history for its own good, and it, it certainly can't study it alone. And it doesn't. <laughs> um, so, and that has helped to change, to change opinions, because the Irish do read history, and they argue about it, and they have this curious thing called a summer school. All sorts of strange places have summer schools in the summer um, <laughs> with contributions from the tourist boards where people argue about history and politics. Locals argue with each other about it. That's very, very healthy. And they have historians uh, to argue with. So, you know, there are quite a lot of things that now can be accepted as true. You may have different interpretations, 
but it's a very slow and painstaking process, studying evidence and presenting it in a way that people can read and understand. And uh, so, you know, it takes years and years and years, and I hope that you will get a lot of people looking at black history who are good historians. You know, you don't just leave it to the sociologists, for God's sake. <laughs> <laughs> Right, well, it is, um, it's time now to, to call a day to uh, proceedings. Uh, the, the comments at the end remind me of what a famous Dutch historian, Peter Heil, said about history, that history is argument without end, and I think that we have seen more than enough examples of that this evening, <laughs> thanks to our panel, so please give them a very warm round of applause.